pretty much every day, there's at least dozens, if not hundreds of new species that are being described. We have that much left to find out in the natural world. Today, we're going to talk to somebody who described 18 new species and actually three new genera. Let's get started. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bill Shear, a professor emeritus in the Department of Biology at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. He's here today to talk to us about his new paper in Zootaxa, in which he and his co-author described three new genera and 18 new species of millipedes from the northwestern United States. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. When we talk about these kinds of critters, a lot of people get kind of confused between a centipede and a millipede. I think most people can understand the little long, skinny thing. What's the difference between a centipede and a millipede? Let's start right there. Well, I think the easiest way to differentiate the two is that uh, with millipedes, the body segments are fused in pairs so that each apparent body segment of a millipede has two pairs of legs, total four legs, whereas in centipedes, each one of those body segments has only one pair of legs. And of course, there are, yeah, there are ecological differences in that centipedes are all predators and millipedes are all uh, feeders on dead vegetation or detritivores. So the ones you're looking at are, are, are even a little more specific. You're looking at these ones called polydesmids. What exactly is a polydesmid millipede? Well, uh, millipedes are uh, one of the least understood major components of biodiversity. Um, there are probably at least 10,000 species that have not yet been described. About 8,000 species are known, a little more than 8,000 species. But that probably represents less than half of the total. And of course, uh, millipedes is a class, and a class is divided into orders. And uh, there are anywhere from 16 to 18 of these orders, and polydesmida is one of the orders, it's the most diverse order, the most abundant order, and uh, people are more likely to come in contact with members of this order than any of the other millipede orders. And generally speaking, what, what do they look like and how big are these if they're some of our most common ones? I know there's quite a range. Yes. So. Yeah, there is a great range. They're often called flatback millipedes because, in fact, they have flat backs. <laughs> they, each segment usually has a sort of a wing-like extension extending out on the side. And this is what makes the backs appear flat. And they range in size from less than three millimeters to, um, well, gosh, the largest polydesmids, which are found in Mexico, are over four inches long. So That's they, quite a bit of variation. Yes, they range from... <laughs> they range from hard to see to hard to miss. And in addition, yeah. <laughs> many of the larger species are brilliantly colorful. That's what was my next question was. So some of these are, most of these, when you think of a millipede, you always think of some little brown thing that kind of curls up when you try to touch it or pick it up. 
But some of these are really brilliantly colored, right? Yes, and what does that true. brilliant color have to do? What is that doing for them? Well, it's actually an example, a very good example of warning coloration because uh, most polydesmid millipedes are capable of producing a very significant quantity of cyanide to defend themselves. And they warn off predators of this potential unpleasant or even lethal experience by having these bright colors. So, so once a bird or a mouse has a bad experience with a millipede that's bright yellow or bright red and black or orange and black, they tend to avoid them from then on. So that's the function of the brilliant colors. But some of them we don't understand. There are numbers of species in Mexico that are bright green or blue. And that's not wow. the usual warning coloration. So we're not sure what that's all about. The ones that we're going to be finding here in, in North America, generally speaking, are going to be the, the kind of the smaller brown ones, somewhere around an inch long. As, and as you point out in this paper, going down to, say, three millimeters, which is well less than a quarter of an inch, right? Yeah, that's especially what? true for the northern part of the country. But uh, throughout much of North America, there are usually at least a couple of the large, brightly colored species that uh, can get all the way up into Canada. Oh, excellent. I'm not I, sure. I, I haven't found them in my area, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Well, they're mostly forest species, and in North Dakota, forest, forested areas are not easy to find. Yeah, North and South Dakota, we're not known for having large forested areas, that's for sure. <laughs> but here in Virginia and southward into North Carolina and down to Alabama, there are literally hundreds of species of these brilliantly colored millipedes. And, and my collaborator, Paul Merrick, and his students recently published a paper in which they described 25 or 30 new ones. There's a lot to be discovered in these, even just in our own backyards Speaking here in the United of which, States. Yeah. When I was teaching at Hampton, Sydney, uh, we had a wooded area out behind the science building. I found two new species right there, right on campus. See, there you go. You don't have to go far to find new species. <laughs> no, Most of the shows that don't. I do are talking to people in far-flung parts of the world, but we can find them here right in the U.S. That's right. People used to say, well, why don't you go to Southeast Asia or Africa or someplace and find all these new species? And I always respond, look, I've got all the new species I can handle right here in Virginia. It's funny, I say the same thing about the little linifeid spiders that I work on, that there's plenty of them around and I don't need to travel to far-flung parts of the world. All I have to do is go out into the middle of a grassland where people haven't done any sampling and I can find them. Yep. So yeah, it's great. Now, when I was a kid, we used to always mess around with the millipedes. You get the, not, not necessarily these polydesmids, they're the rounder ones, right? And they're just like about an inch long and they were brown and they'd curl up and they always put off a little odor when you'd mess with them. What is that? Yes, that's right. Most, most millipedes have this chemical defense that we talked about earlier. With, with the polydesmids, it's cyanide. With the um, millipedes that you're describing, it's a mix of chemicals that generally fall into the chemical category of hydroxyquinones. And uh, they are, well, they're they can be uh, very corrosive. So there are stories of people collecting these large millipedes in the tropics and putting them in their back pockets and then winding up with a huge blister. Uh, <laughs> some of the millipedes can squirt these things, and if you get it in your eyes, it'll blind you for a couple of hours. 
So uh, they're pretty potent chemical defenses. The hydroxyquinones that they produce are very effective against uh, predators like ants, as well as vertebrate predators. The cyanide is mostly directed at vertebrates. It, it doesn't have much of an effect on uh, things like ants or scorpions. So now we know that they're defending themselves in the, in, in the nature, and we have an idea of their size and everything. We've talked briefly about their uh, ecological role, including these polydesmids. You would mentioned they're detritivores. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are these things doing in the world? What's their function in our, in our ecosystems? So uh, in deciduous forest land, uh, they can be very important as uh, the first set of organisms that reduces dead organic matter like fallen leaves, twigs, rocks, and stumps. Rocks, not rocks. Logs <laughs> and stumps. They don't eat rocks, but they do eat. No, but we've all been there. Don't worry. It's okay. I've tried to eat rocks too, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> My dog does eat rocks, but let, that's another story. Anyway. <laughs> that's another story. Uh, anyway, uh, they grind up this this matter, and as it passes through their digestive tracts, they extract what nutrition they can, and then uh, their fecal material becomes a part of the humus layer, and that's further worked on by smaller arthropods, then by fungi and bacteria, and eventually the nutrients in those dead leaves and twigs are returned to the soil and taken up again by plants. So they're very, very important in recycling, and in fact, away from the temperate zones, where earthworms play that role mostly. Uh, in the tropics, millipedes are the major recyclers of organic nutrients. Oh, fascinating. And so on that note then, you have to go out and find these things. How are you finding them? In, in, let's talk specifically about the ones that were in your paper. Uh, how were these mostly found? How were they collected? Okay, well, these millipedes are very, very tiny. All of the millipedes that are described in this paper are five millimeters or less in length, and most of them are around three millimeters. So they're really hard to find, and yeah, they are not like among it. the brightly colored ones, so they don't necessarily stand out. They're sort of a pale brown or tan color, and you get them mostly by just very meticulously sorting through the leaf litter in a forest. Another method that's kind of automatic is called the Berlizzi funnel method, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, in which you pile all the leaf litter into a big metal funnel and then turn on a light bulb above it, and the heat and light from the light bulb drives the animals in the sample down through the funnel and into a collecting tube at the bottom. And that's a very good way for collecting soil organisms and organisms that live in the leaf litter. But... Uh, a lot of the collecting of these Pacific Northwest millipedes was uh, done by Bill Leonard, who is a longtime collaborator of mine and who is actually a mollusk expert. He works on slugs and tiny snails. So he but we'll goes through We'll the, forgive him for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's forgivable. It's one of those things, you know, they can't help. <laughs> but he goes, he's looking for tiny micro snails. So he goes through the leaf litter with uh, one of these jeweler's magnifiers on his head, you know, looking through these magnifying lenses at the leaf litter. And he just, he started seeing a lot of millipedes around 20 years ago. 
and decided to send them to millipede specialists, myself included. And it turns out that uh, just scores of new species, new genera, and even uh, two families, one which is a totally new family, and the other a family which had never before been found in North America. So uh, he made a lot of discoveries by looking very, very closely at some small animals. That's often science, though, isn't it? If you just pay close enough attention, you may find something new. You're exactly right, yeah. Now, you've just, you just segued right into the next part of this. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> how did you decide that these were new species? You're talking about finding so much new biodiversity right here in the United States, in this case, particularly in the Pacific, Pacific Northwest. How did you decide that these were new species when you're looking at them? What characters are you looking at? Well, it would be something that would be very familiar to you, Brian, from your work on spiders. Uh, when you look for new species of spiders, one of the first things you probably do is to look at the males, right? And the males have modified appendages, which are used for sperm transfer. And these are highly specific to the species. And it's very much the same deal with millipedes. Uh, on the seventh body segment, millipede males have a pair of legs called gonopods, which are specifically modified to transfer sperm to the females. And these are specific to each species. They no longer look anything like legs. They're very complicated and uh, even relatively small differences in these appendages can be used to separate species. So that's basically what you look for first. And then of course you will often find other characters that will help separate the organisms as well. And now, you know, we have available molecular methods so that you can actually look at the genetic information. And sometimes that will key you into uh, species that only have very, very small physical differences. So basically, that's how we recognize them. We didn't use molecular methods with these organisms because the specimens have been preserved for too long. But... Uh, yeah, the morphology of the gonopods is the main thing, and most of the illustrations in the paper are of these structures. The diversity that's coming out of that Pacific Northwest area there is really high, not just in millipedes, but in a lot of organisms. What's so special about that area up there that makes it such an ecologically interesting area? Well, I think that there are lots and lots of factors involved. First of all, uh, I think one factor is that there just hasn't been enough effort put in to collecting and discovering organisms uh, up there in the Pacific Northwest. And another factor, of course, is that uh, the climate they have there is sort of a semi-Mediterranean climate with cool, wet winters and hot, dry summers. And most people who collect organisms are connected with academic institutions, so they do most of their field work in the summer. And in the case of organisms that live in the leaf litter, they burrow deep down into the soil to stay damp during that period of time. So you just don't find them. You have to collect in the winter. And that was the great thing with Bill Leonard and uh, Casey Richard, an associate of his, is that they went out in the dead of winter. And if you look at the dates of collection in our paper, you'll see that uh, the dates range from November into February. And so they got out there. They got out there in the winter when they knew they'd be finding a lot of snails. 
And they also picked up a lot of millipedes. And they were able to do that because Bill worked for the Washington Highway Department uh, rather than for an academic institution. So he was an ecologist for the uh, highway department. He was probably more busy in the summer doing his road work than he was doing ecological work. So that probably freed him up a little bit more in the in the winter to be able to go out and do that, right? That might be the case, yeah. 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 <laughs> because, you know, as you pointed out, most of us only have time in the academic world to do this stuff in the summer. That area up there is really fascinating, though. You know, they have the, the temperate rainforest, which is the area you were talking about. They have a, a variety of habitats because of the mountains that come in through there and just the way the wind currents come in. And I think you hit on what I think is probably the most important part. People haven't really looked that hard for things up there. They're too busy spending time off in the tropics because that's where the sexy biology is. Yeah. And I think we probably need to spend more time in our backyards. What do you think on that? I would agree with you completely. Um, the tropics are important, of course, and, and you know we're very focused on diversity in the tropics. But I, I've often heard the leaf litter and soil habitat referred to as the poor man's rainforest because the diversity <laughs> is so incredibly high. And if you look at samples taken the way we were talking about before by means of Berlizzi funnels, the diversity that you see coming down out of those funnels is absolutely stunning and incredible. And many of those species don't have names and have never been described, never been formally published on. And the, the more diverse the habitats are, and you certainly see a tremendous diversity of habitats in the Pacific Northwest, uh, then the more biodiversity there is. It's quite amazing. I think you also hit on the other point for why a lot of people don't do this the the way you and I are doing this. Because I, I also work on these little tiny, as I alluded to earlier, these little tiny things that live down in the, the litter levels. They're small and they're difficult. They're not big, pretty, charismatic things like huge butterflies. Do you think that has something to do with it as well? I just don't think that there's as many people who want to spend the time to stare through a microscope at the genitalia of... Little tiny arthropods. <laughs> I don't know. You're making it sound pretty attractive. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, it takes – you have to acquire a lot of skills. For example, you've got a millipede that's three millimeters long, and you're trying to dissect the gonopods so that you can put them on a scanning electron microscope stub. You know, my students – Sometimes would come in on me when I was working in the lab dissecting one of these things, and they wondered what I was doing because they didn't see any movement. But actually, yeah. if they were able to look through the microscope, they would see lots of movement as I was uh, working away trying to get particular characters dissected out of a very, very tiny specimen. You know, in millipedes, it's very hard because these structures are often retracted into the body. With spiders, you know, you can just snap off those appendages and take a quick look. But uh, with the millipedes, you, you've got to do some digging. So it's you have to be interested in it. And why people would get interested in it, I can't possibly explain. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I've had a lot of students who've done it too, and I'm sure you have too, who when you get them into the lab at first, they're just resistant to it. They're tiny. They're hard to work with. Once you, you give them the basics – they tend to fall in love with it and start going, wow, this is actually really interesting. It's, it's difficult to manipulate it's, and that sort of thing. But once you get kind of used to it, they really kind of get into it and realize that these little tiny things that you can barely see are actually 
very interesting looking when you blow them up in in the microscope and see them at quite large scale. Have you had that experience as well with students? Yeah, you're right. And and uh, sometimes I kind of fantasize when I'm looking through the microscope at some bizarre soil organism, thinking, "Wow, if this thing were 20 feet long, it would make a tremendous horror movie." Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the big mandibles and stuff all snapping around and <laughs> Yeah, I have a I have a whole series of pictures I use when I give talks that are extreme close-ups of some of these organisms and people look at them and they say, "Oh my god." You know, I'm glad that thing is not the size of a dog. <laughs> yeah, I've done that with spiders, even the little tiny spiders, particularly linophiids. A lot of them have some kind of armature on them. They're like little spikes and points. And when you show that to people, it first, they're freaking out because it's a spider. But then second, when they see how ferocious this one millimeter, two millimeter spider can be, they're pretty amazed. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you did more than just decide that you had new species. You also, just to switch gears here, we're, we're kind of switching gears immediately here, decided you had three whole new genera. So you had a, a, a new genus. Oh, wait, no. Now there's there's another new genus. And now we have yet a third new genus. How, how did you decide that these were new genera? We already talked about the species level. But when you go up a level, how do you decide you have a new genus? Well, it's quite frankly a subjective process. A genus is not a category that you can objectively define like you can a species. I mean, you can objectively define what a species is. It's a population that's reproductively isolated from other populations. So they can't exchange genetic information except within their own population. A genus is generally thought of as a group of species that are descended from a common ancestor. And so when you see that you have a group of species like three or four that were three or four species that were collected uh, for this paper. And they're all very similar, but quite different from anything that's been seen before. Then you're probably justified in establishing a new genus to contain that group of related species. But it's also a category of convenience because if you have a genus that has Let's say, and there's one genus of centipedes that fits this. It has over 300 species in it. It gets pretty hard to handle that kind of information. So in a way, it's a part of a filing system that makes it easier to handle biodiversity. Uh, it's not an objectively defined category, but... Uh, you know, more like a file folder or a file drawer that just makes it easy and convenient for you to find and identify information about the species that are contained. And just so our listeners are aware, because I haven't defined this in quite a while in case we get a new person listening to this, a genus would be, for example, we always do species names in two parts. We do the, for example, with humans, it's Homo sapiens. Most people are aware of that one. Homo being the genius sapiens being the specific epithet, the species being the two put together, homo right. sapiens. Right. And within the genus homo, we actually do have multiple other species. We just happen to be the only one that's still alive. And so it is a filing system. So we can kind of group all the things that look a lot like humans, acted a lot like humans as far as we could tell based on other things. And that's what you're doing with the millipedes or, or people are doing with other organisms out there as well, right? Yeah, very good. Good explanation. Now you've got the, the new genera. How did you pick these three names? you get got three new names of the genera. What are the names and, and how did you decide on these? Well, 
three new genera. There was uh, an already named genus called Retrorsia. And one of the new genera looked like it is probably related to that genus. So we decided to call it Retrorsioides, which is a way of saying it's Retrorsia-like. The, uh, the suffix oides is, I think it's from Greek, but it indicates a similarity. So we got that one. And then uh, a second genus we decided to call Roland Desmus. Now, Desmus is a, a suffix that's very common in the polydesmidae. I think it refers to a string of beads or something like that. And so the name Roland was for a late colleague of ours, Roland Shelley, uh, who worked at the Natural History Museum in North Carolina and who had published over 300 papers on millipede taxonomy, centipedes, scorpions, and a few other uh, characters. So uh, we decided to honor his memory by naming that genus. And then uh, Benedictesmus was much the same way, except it was honoring Ellen Benedict, who back in the 1970s collected a lot of the material on which this paper was based. So that's how we got our generic names. But when you've described a lot of genera and a lot of species, and I've, I've named over 400 species, selecting the names gets to be quite a chore, you know, and so oftentimes sure. <laughs> you fall back on what you referred to earlier as patronyms. So you name species after people or after places uh, rather than using a descriptive term. There are two other species names in there that were important for us, right? You, you did a genus after one of them, and now you have two species names. We discussed this before we had started, uh, and we wanted to make sure we brought these two individuals up, these two individual species up. Why were they important? What are they? Well, the two species I think you're referring to were named uh, Richardi and Leonardi. And the Richardi species name was named for Casey Richard, who is a wonderful naturalist who works now at the Santa Barbara Botanical Garden in California. And Leonardi, of course, refers to Bill Leonard, who we've mentioned before, who is a mollusk specialist who's now retired from uh, working for the state of Washington. And uh, these guys just did a tremendous amount of collecting and, you know, getting a package in the mail from either of them was like getting a Christmas present because, <laughs> you know, it was going to be full of goodies. Yeah, Casey is quite the guy. He collects just about anything he can get his hands on and tries to put a name on everything. And if he can't, he'll send it to somebody who he thinks can. And, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful naturalist. You're correct on that. And a very good scientist on top of it. My last question, and I, I ask this of most people, since we haven't quite covered this topic yet, we, we did a little bit. Why should people care about millipedes? Why are they important? Most people just see them as an annoyance that may come into their house or something kind of freaky they see in the yard. Why should we really care about these things? Well, I'll tell you, Brian, uh, answering questions like that is something that's very difficult for me because um, I don't like arguments that are what you might call utilitarian. You know, in other words, uh, oh, we should be interested in millipedes and we should study them and so on because they might have some economic importance in the future. Maybe we'll find some drugs or something like that and so on. And that's very um, 
human-centered, when in reality, we should be studying these organisms because they share the planet with us. And they may have all kinds of important, but as yet unknown to us, uh, ecological roles in maintaining this planet where everything is linked together, not just in chains, but in fantastic networks. And also, it's inexplicable. <laughs> you get interested in them because of what they are. Uh, somebody once asked John Henry Comstock why he spent so much time on spiders and you know, being a sort of irascible old gentleman. He said, because they're damned interesting, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not wrong. So that's my answer <laughs> to that question. Millipedes are damned interesting. Well, in addition, I, you know, we talked about it earlier. They're very important uh, components of the ecosystem. They, in particularly in tropical environments, are what make all of the dead stuff, particularly dead plant matter, go away. Imagine how much of that would accumulate if we didn't have these things. They're they're exceptionally important to our world. Without them, we would just accumulate dead stuff, and we would actually literally just get buried in all of that, and it would it would have bad ramifications, let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. So whenever I answer these sorts of questions, I, I always like to point out, well, because if you take away, for example, all of the spiders, you're suddenly going to have a lot more problems with a lot of pests, with a lot of even beneficial things that are no longer kept in check. Something is only beneficial until it becomes too much of something. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah, true with the right. with this detritus and this litter, the arthropods, whatever it is that's out there. You know, deer, white-tailed deer in my part of the country are an important part of our ecosystem. But it is possible to have too many of them. Brian, you <laughs> you've raised a subject about which I would rant and rave for hours because <laughs> I live in a uh, just on the border of a small town. Uh, where the houses are widely separated by stretches of woods. And literally, we can't have gardens because of the yeah, deer. because of the deer. Uh, yeah. You know, which are, as you say, important components of the ecosystem. But when you remove the predators and when deer hunting goes down, you've got too many of them. And people are hitting them with their cars. They're destroying gardens and landscaping, spreading disease such as Lyme disease, the ticks that they support, and so on. And uh, cute little Bambi suddenly turns into a monster. Indeed, yeah. And people want to know, why do we still need those predators around here? Oh, they're so terrible. No, no, they're what's keeping all of this other stuff in check. You're right. We I need read those. recently <laughs> a news release that in Wisconsin, uh, collisions between automobiles and deer are down about 25%. And people are attributing that to the reintroduction of wolves, which has reduced the deer population in rural Wisconsin. So, Oh, and it makes perfect sense. Around here, at some point while we were living here in South Dakota, uh, we had like the second highest incident of people hitting deer with their cars. And so they started increasing the number of, of deer tags that would go out so people could hunt them. Uh, and actually doing in-town culling. So they would actually hire specialists to, to, to come in and actually use crossbows or whatever to kill them in town because they're getting so populous and spreading all of these problems you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And so when people ask me, why do we care about something? These are the kind of stories I point to, right? And uh, if we didn't have these important little millipedes in our world, we would have problems. <laughs> 
Well, Bill, I want to thank you for coming on. You are, and I say this without exaggeration, you're one of my heroes out there. I, it's always been a pleasure. We've only met in person a couple of times. You probably don't remember it, but I know I do <laughs> because uh, you're, you're such an important figure in the arachnological world and beyond. And I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Well, hearing you say that, Brian, I, I'm going to have to work on changing my behavior a lot because, uh, you know, if, if I'm your hero and you want to emulate me, there are some things I shouldn't be doing anymore. So I'll work, <laughs> I'll work on that. <laughs> but thanks very much for inviting me. It's been great talking to you. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah, and I really enjoyed talking with you as well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Once again, Bill Shear's paper is in the May 24 issue of Zootaxa, and the title of the paper is Three New Genera and 18 New Species of Miniature Polydesmid Millipedes from the Northwestern United States. See the episode details for a link to the paper, and check out the episode notes for more information. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species, and like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.